Welcome to The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Today I'm joined by Dr. Lenny Waite. Lenny is a performance psychologist and a certified mental performance consultant. She chairs the sports psychology services for USA Track and Field, is an assistant professor at the University of St. Thomas, where she is developing a master's program in performance psychology. And oh, by the way, she is a world-class track and field athlete who represented Great Britain in the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. But more than that, she's incredibly kind, incredibly honest, and incredibly insightful. And she was outstanding on the podcast. Lenny and I discussed her journey to becoming a world-class runner and Olympic athlete, goal setting, choosing a country and what goes into that, suffering an injury in Rio, post-Olympic depression, finding balance, and so much more. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Lenny Waite. Perfect. So I want to start by telling me you're leaving for the Olympic trials in a couple of days, correct? I am, yes. And tell me what your role is there. Explain what you're doing. So I chair the sports psychology services for USA Track and Field. It's a subcommittee of the sports science and medicine team. So I'll be up there working with athletes, doing some some of my like athletes that I do one-on-ones with, helping prepare for the uh, meet. But my main job is to work team processing. So when people qualify for the Olympic team. Um, I give them sports psychology resources, make sure they know what to connect to in terms of like mental health, performance resources, things that they need in their toolbox for Tokyo. You can go over some like sleep and jet lag uh, skills. Yeah. And just make sure they're prepared. So you have a schedule, but you're also on call if someone is just struggling. <laughs> yeah. So like when, when we're there, there'll be me and, and a couple other sports psychs will, will join for various parts because it's a 12-day event. So the U.S. Olympic trials follows the actual Olympic schedule. So they spread those events out. And there will be a lot of troubleshooting. Um, There will probably be a few urgent cases uh, with athletes. And then there's just going to be a lot of like logistics and planning. And of course, just stress through the roof because of all the COVID testing, all the procedures that they're having to go to. So it's an extra challenging year to work the Olympic trials for, for anybody. But also just, yeah, more challenging, I would say, on the, the mental health sports psychology space than it has been in previous years. One thought that just occurred to me, are these athletes having to qualify again? No. So okay. they, they didn't actually get to the trials. The trials were canceled for 2020. So this is their very delayed trials. So yeah, it's going to benefit some athletes, didn't benefit others. And so, but, but it is what it is. Tell me this, is this new what you're doing and within the last decade or so where there's someone there to support their mental health? Yeah. So, well, USA Track and Field has had people work in the sports psychology space for for a while now, I think even since the 80s. Okay. But in terms of people traveling to domestic events, being there, the face-to-face contact that we have, the, the size of the group and and what we cover, I mean... We cover the performance side, right? So dealing with performance anxiety, just race preparation. We help connect athletes to mental health resources. And we even deal with things like career transitions, you know, connecting athletes to external resources just, just to help them in life in general. So I would say the breadth and, and depth of our services has increased. Well, again, welcome. Thank you for being here. I'm terribly excited. For a number of reasons. Number one, I want to certainly cover your journey to becoming a world-class athlete, which I think is a badass term, <laughs> but also an Olympic athlete. But you're also a psychologist, which is perfect for what we're trying to discuss here. And as I was researching you and reading through your blog and reading through some of your work and listening to some of your talks, everything seems to be through an athletic lens, but mm-hmm. it's perfectly obvious to me that it applies no matter where you are in life. Is that something that you're actively trying to put forth or is that something you hear a lot? Yeah, I mean, I, I would really I like to, to sell myself more as a performance psychologist. So I love working with the sporting population because it's what I grew up with. And it's what I'm an expert in. And I do feel like my experiences as a world class Olympic athlete, really just make that role kind of an easy space for me to work. 
But yeah, longer term and, and even right now working in areas outside of that. Um, so doing some work right now with the Air Force. I've done some work in the past just in like leadership development. I've done some work in the past just with, like organizations helping, helping people like hire the right people, doing a little bit of organizational consulting, but always through that performance lens, which comes from that athletic background. And we're certainly out of chronological order, but tell me about the comparing fighter pilots to athletes. Yeah, yeah. So there, if you read popular media, they talk a lot of times about how these high intensity military personnel, whether they're Army, Air Force, Navy, you know, these people, they have to be trained like an Olympic athlete to withstand the the physical training, the, the kind of mental brutality that they have to go through. And so there's been this long standing kind of anecdotal theme that Olympic athletes and these, these special warfare operators are very, very similar. But no real objective data has ever been collected on making that comparison. Uh, so we're trying to see, is that true? Are there similarities? Or are they, they more alike? Or are they more different? Um, and I think you can probably think of, of examples in your head where maybe they're alike and, and maybe they're or different. Can we and, learn from each other? Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. And I always feel like you can learn anything from somebody who is the best in the world at what they do. So if we have the opportunity to talk with Olympic gold medalists, it doesn't matter if you're pararescue personnel or you're flying planes or you're trying to be a CEO of a company. That person who has won a gold medal has become the best in the world at what they are trying to do. And they have something that you can learn about. Let's go beyond gold medalists. You can learn something from anyone <laughs> if you're willing to listen. So I'm sure studying fire pilots and elite athletes, you're going to learn a ton. But let's, let's do go chronologically. Let's start with your background. You were born in Scotland. Yeah. And then at some point, you've made your way to the United States. Yeah. Talk me through that. Where did you grow up? How did you make your way to Houston, Texas? Okay. So, yeah. Born in Scotland. Was was there for two years. Parents then moved to Switzerland. Um, so, did some school in Geneva. And then came over to the U.S. for the third grade. So, moved to Austin, Texas um, when I was in the third I'm from grade. Austin, Texas. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very we're cool. in Austin. Uh, so my parents live in Westlake. Okay. What other. did your parents do? Why did you move around from there? My dad worked for Motorola at the time, okay. so in the semiconductor industry, and he kind of took over a, a role that they were based in Austin, kind of a technology hub, and that's what brought us, yeah, to, to Texas. Okay. And you did run growing up, but it sounds like yeah. you played all sports, especially because you accepted a scholarship in soccer of all things. So yeah. Was running a big focus growing up or you were just an all-around athlete? Um, so I think I, when I look back, I view myself as an all-around athlete. I think people that saw me run, that were experts in the sport of running, always knew that I was a runner. But I didn't identify as a runner. I think if you ask any like 7 to 12, I mean, even like 7 to 17 year old, like, do you want to go run for 30 minutes? Or do you want to kick a soccer ball? The answer is pretty obvious. <laughs> uh, and my older sister, she ran, and she was very good, very, very competitive. And her name was Katie. Her name is Katie. She she ran at Rice. Um, and so I used to get dragged along to meets because she was competing. And I would say she loved it, maybe more than I did at a younger age. And so I used to just go because it was better than paying for a babysitter. And if I was going to be there, I was going to compete. But she was a runner and I was a soccer player. And I think the fact that we could kind of do things that were slightly different, but also be very high performing was good for both of us. But I think every, I think my parents knew and I think coaches kind of all knew that if I would commit to running younger, I could have had some success younger. But there are also massive benefits to waiting until I was in college to, to explore that. Dig into that. Double click on that because I've when we connected last week, I told you I've been in this runner's rabbit hole. I read Bravey by Alexi Pappas. Yeah. I've been researching you. I've been reading about running, specifically about female running. Mm -hmm. And I now understand that how to develop young female runners is hotly debated. Mm -hmm. Walk me through that. And do you think not running so seriously mm -hmm. at a young age actually benefited you? Yeah, massively. And I would say my sister Katie would, would agree. I think we kind of look back at our career trajectories and she's almost like, if I wouldn't have run as much, maybe I would have been better later. Did she break down? What, walk me through yeah, what, so, what is exactly the argument. So the physiology, like I could spend hours talking about this. The physiology of a female high school athlete is very, very delicate. Going through puberty, people take different trajectories, whether you gain weight, grow boobs, gain hips, 
or you stay similar body style, it's kind of to be determined what happens in high school. And there are some great high school um, young runners, like maybe freshmen, maybe even eighth graders, who are very, very good, but it's because they haven't gone through puberty. They push the mileage, they push the training, they delay puberty, they injure their bone density, they get into a cycle known as relative energy deficiency syndrome, and they have incredible performances until they don't. And you don't know if those incredible performances are going to last until their junior year, until their senior year, until their freshman year of college. But it's typical that that kind of overtraining, getting very, very specific into distance running, counting mileage, doing a lot of that volume for that female physiology is, is not what is best. So why is it debated? Why is it, <laughs> why is it even controversial at this point? Um, yeah, I, I think... I mean, I think part of it is just like in general coaching education. Uh, in general, like who's coaching high school cross country? I would say probably men in their fifties. Yeah, right. And so, how are you going to explain to a man in his fifties like this fourteen-year-old girl that you were coaching is very different to this fourteen-year-old boy? And you need to give them completely different training programs. First of all, we're probably giving that person an extra what thousand dollars stipend to coach forty or fifty athletes, and so there's low motivation on their part. I don't blame the coaches. Well, and their livelihood may be predicated on this young girl winning these events and you're basically telling them your star can't be your star anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I've gotten, I, I've maybe had an, an argument here and there with a high school coach about, you know, like you, you actually need to put the brakes on. Don't push this athlete. This isn't a good path. There are warning signs and it's like, well, no, she's going to be state champion. She really enjoys it. Of course, she's in, she enjoys it. And that's the thing. Like, all of this is positively enforcing. The athlete runs more. They probably eat less. They get a little bit obsessive. Uh, they get rewarded for that. And so they think that is what success is made of. And now anybody who has had a long-term sustainable career recognizes that that is not what success is made of. So you went to Rice. And what I read on your website is your running potential was noticed. How does that happen? How do you show up? And you're, are you running a mile with the soccer team? And they're saying, wait a second, you're running incredible times. What, what does that mean? So I, I'll back up and say in high school, I always, I mean, I, I did cross country soccer track. So I always ran from my high school and I was recruited to run in high school and probably at equivalent, if not even slightly better offers to run. No, I wasn't interested. And so Jim Bevan, the coach at Rice, he knew me from my sister and he always had tried to he, he tried to recruit me uh, to run for you him were on his radar. Yeah, man. yeah, and he would come out to the soccer games and he would watch me and he would make comments like, "Well, you need to come out to track after soccer's over." And he was so he he did it so perfectly to get me hooked on running because I I didn't like to run. Most college runners who are on a Division One scholarship they actually they enjoy it they want they want to do it. Uh, and I finished our, our spring soccer season my freshman year and he made it seem so relaxed and so like not a big deal. He showed up with a track uniform and was like, Hey, the team is going to Stephen F. Austin to run this low key meet. It'll be really fun. There's some great people on the team. You should come do it. And I was like, Oh, I've never actually had anybody just kind of offer me a spot on starting line that seems no, so nonchalant because I went to a smaller school and it just, Every time I lined up, it was like I either won, and if I didn't win, then I failed. And I didn't like that about running. And I was suddenly in the situation where I just finished a soccer season. Nobody even knew that I was like still running or even fit. I hadn't done any specific training. Um, I was like, yeah, you know, that sounds all right. I could go do that. And I ran, I think, two sixteen in the eight hundred, and I, which is decent enough. But above all, I had a great time at the meet, and it was the first time I was like, oh, track can be fun. And it kind of planted that seed in my head for the first time. And the way that Coach Bevan uh, reacted when I ran that, he was basically like, you just performed about as well as our other athletes who've been training all year. What might happen if you committed to this sport? And so that really planted the seed for me. Would you say you love running now? Oh my gosh. Absolutely love it. What do you love about running now? It's the time where I come up with my best ideas. It's the time when I problem solve. It's my social time. Like this morning, I ran with two other women. It is the time where I feel like most free, most authentic. And yeah, I'm not stressed about anything. 
that description fits competition too, or is competition <laughs> again down this rabbit hole? Yeah, all competition runners talk is about pain. <laughs> and how do you relate to pain? Is it something you tolerated, you hated, you loved? What? Yeah. Um, so my, I'd say my relationship with pain evolved. And right. So, so that description that I just gave of running is how I feel now. So I'm retired now, and it's something that I get to do purely for pleasure. And I will say, especially after having a child, being in my mid 30s, I'm like very, very thankful that my body can still do that. And I love it. And it's awesome. That wasn't always the case. No. So even when I started running competitively again, the the pain really scared me. That's what I got nervous about. I tried to avoid it. It took until probably like my late 20s. What scared you about it? Did you think your heart was going to explode? What did you what was scary about it? I mean, you know, like, you know, when you're lining up, there's going to come a point in the race where your brain is screaming for you to stop. And the only way for you to be successful is to tell that little person in your head that's begging for mercy just to like go away. And you think you know how to deal with it. But no one has mastered that completely all the time with 100% consistency. What did Mike Tyson say? Everyone has a plan to get punched in the face. That's your version <laughs> of getting punched in the yeah. face. It's like, what's your plan now? Yeah. And right when things start to hurt, what's your human reaction? You get a little bit tense. You put your foot on the brake. Your thoughts start to kind of spiral. You kind of wonder what's going to happen next. And you need to have the opposite reaction when that happens in a race. And that takes a long time to master. And it wasn't until I really thought about get excited for that moment. Because when you hit that moment, it means you're at the point of the race where there's an opportunity for you to push through and actually get that personal best, actually get that Olympic qualifying standard. And restructuring that moment of a race is something that took me, like, I would say probably years. It sounds like to me what I've always said is reframe struggling in your mind, whether it's learning math or fitness or running. If you can reframe struggling, which is something I tell my young daughter as that's growth. That's your brain growing. That's your body growing. And if you can figure out a way to reframe it, which it sounds like exactly what you're saying, then... That's also where you break your competitors. Right now, it's easy to have that conversation. It's easy to tell your daughter that. But when you're in the moment where it's high pressure, high intensity, there's girls breathing down your neck, you see time on the clock, you have a performance goal. When all those things come into play, actually being able to execute that skill was a big challenge for me. So maybe I started to be able to do it every now and again when I was like in my senior year arrived in my fifth year I got better and then I went on the world stage and I actually got significantly worse <laughs> because the the game changed my competitors changed where I was in a race changed my expectations skyrocketed and then I kind of had to remaster that that like mental game for that world class stage again which took another it was almost like going back to being a freshman in college is this the point where you also developed a love for psychology was in college when you were thinking about how to master this? When did yeah. when did you start accumulating this need to, to pursue an academic goal? Yeah, so I would say there are, there are a couple of things that led me to the path of psychology. And I'll start with, I, originally, I came as an economics major. And then I did an internship at Merrill Lynch my sophomore year. And I was like, I could never do this for a living. Like I sat behind a screen. You know, we went to lunch and that was probably my favorite part of the day. And then I sat behind the screen again. I remember I came back and there's a Rice professor, Mickey Hebel, who I, maybe you've heard of. I feel like she's been very impactful for a lot of um, Rice students and a lot of Rice cross-country and track runners specifically. And she told me, she was like, you should do what I do. You should do industrial organizational psychology. You would be great at it. So I just kind of dove in and was like, I'm, I'm going to double major. I was, I was still scared to be truly a psychology major. I think I had this stereotype that I would never get a job, which is absolutely not true. Anybody listening, you can get a great job with a psychology major. And, and so, yeah, I, I became interested. I think taking more psychology classes also coincided with this moment in my track career. So kind of backing up again. When I, I talked about that race I ran at the end of my freshman year, I still went out and played soccer my sophomore year. And then I realized that I wanted to run. And so then I transferred fully to running and ran cross country my junior year. But I still viewed myself as a walk-on. And so I had no expectation. And I was like, this is just really fun just to be a walk-on, to enjoy this time with my teammates and to be able to exercise. And, and I just purely was out there not really thinking about 
ever winning a conference championship, like never thought I'd make it to a national stage. I honestly thought that the women who made it to nationals, they had like, I joked about this, they had like a triple lung or like a hidden superpower. And I was too normal. I'm just like way too normal to be that good at running. And Jim was like such a nice coach. He never really put my back up against the wall and challenged me to perform until it's like my junior year. And he realized that although I was getting much fitter in practice, I wasn't showing that in the race results as good as I can, as, as good as I could have. And he asked me why I put my competitors up on a pedestal and let them run in front of me. And I was like, oh, I didn't do that. He's like, you, you do. And I was like, oh, no, you're disappointed in me. And that just kind of woke up this competitor in me again. And like, that was a moment that the switch flipped. I started using some of the psychology skills. The next race, I think I just was like, I'm going to go out in the lead and see what happens. I ran a massive personal best. And that kind of the next year, I ran a few school records, made it nationals. And I just like laughed because it was like one conversation. And I've told Jim this before. And he's like, you know, I don't even really remember saying that to you. <laughs> That's like the number one thing I remember in college is telling me just to race harder and like do better. Do you think not having expectations at the beginning was a hindrance or it actually helped? Long term, massively help. Yeah. I don't, like, I, when I think I had nine years of a career as a professional athlete, and I think that's because I didn't hit my peak until my fifth year of college. And so I still had a lot of runway to improve in my professional career. Whereas girls, women who are making national championships younger, it's not that they can't do it, right? It's just, it's another bucket of challenges that they've already had to deal with. And it, it's, it's exhausting. Like performing at a high level is very exhausting. It's a roller coaster. And there are individual differences on how people can sustain that over time. And I think the fact that my development was delayed allowed me to, to push on a little bit. Well, and to be able to perform without the added stress of expectations. Yeah. I mean, I definitely want to get to expectations once you put your psychologist hat on later, but I think that's a massive advantage. And those that can play without worrying about results, mm-hmm. those that can compete without worrying about outcomes have an advantage. One other thing that you mentioned just struck a chord with me, putting your competitors on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, we always said it right when we were great in baseball was we were internally arrogant to go out there and say, wait a second, you're not better than me. In mm-hmm. fact, I'm better than you is something I think all athletes have. And I want to get into that later because I'm not so sure if it's all that healthy once you leave the sport. <laughs> but I do think you have to have some hubris. Regardless, you may not be the, the best, but you better believe it if you, if you want to achieve that goal. Let's switch gears for a bit. Choosing a country. Okay, I'm yeah. really interested in this. Walk me through the decision process, your decision mm-hmm. process, because yours is even more unique. And then get into the logistics for me. So do countries keep databases of athletes mm-hmm. that they have access to and they actively recruit you? Or as an athlete, are you filling out an application and submitting times and saying, here's the proof of my citizenship. Mm-hmm. How does all that work? Yeah. So, so first of all, go entering into my fifth year, I remember coach Jim Bevan saying something like, if you run fast enough, like you could do this, like you could get paid to do this in Europe in the summer. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. It's so strange that people pay you to run. Um, and I kind of just forgot about it. And then I raced some good steeplechases and he knew because he had a relationship with my sister and my, my parents. And so he knew that I was born in Scotland. And I think he'd done a little bit of research. And we were, it was a Commonwealth game. So I graduated in 09 and Commonwealth games were 2010. And I had run a Commonwealth games standard in my last second to last race in the NCAA. But this isn't even in your head. Your coach is the one monitoring. Yeah, yeah. He's because okay. he understands, you know, he's he understands the whole landscape okay. of professional track and field. I'm still I'm so narrowly set. I mean, my junior year, I hadn't even medaled at a conference championship. So I was like, so focused on getting a conference medal and then on a making it to nationals and how far could I place there? I didn't know this world beyond that even existed. But he had some understanding. And so he kind of said after I ran that 950, he was like, you know, we should reach out to Scotland because you qualified. 
And we should figure out what that process is for you to be able to run in the Commonwealth Games team in India and in Delhi next year. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds that sounds kind of cool. Like, yeah, absolutely. And so he just like sent an email to the like uh, endurance director at Scottish Athletics. And he opened that up, opened up that conversation for me. Was there any conversation about sending that to the United States or? No, I don't, I don't think so. And I think that's right. So in the U.S., you don't have like 2010, there was no Commonwealth game. So me going to run professionally for the U.S. at that point would have been, can I make a world team? Can I make an Olympic team? And I think if Jim would have suggested that to me, I would have just like laughed in his face. But he knew that with the security of me being able to represent Scotland internationally um, at the Commonwealth Games, I would, yeah, I would continue to run. You'd stack another brick. Yeah, I'd stack there. another brick. So there wasn't much detailed thought out. Do I run for the United States? Yeah. Do I run for Scotland? Do I run for Great Britain? It was more, hey, okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think growing up, like I didn't get my U.S. citizenship until I turned 18. And so even I remember growing up playing soccer, I was like, I'm going to play on the, the World Cup team for Scotland. or I'm going to represent Great Britain in the Olympics. And, and the way that it works is, Great Britain splits up for the Commonwealth Games, but at an Olympics and a World Championships, they all come together. So in Olympics, uh, I always represent Great Britain. At some of those Commonwealth Games, those Commonwealth countries, they split up and I, I would run for Scotland. So the answer to my question is athletes pursue countries more than countries pursue athletes, unless you're some wild talent. Yeah, yeah. I would say maybe if I had run like 15 seconds faster or, you know, even 10 seconds faster, maybe we would have had the conversation of like, this is what a pathway of committing to run for Great Britain and Scotland looks like. This is what a pathway of racing for the US looks like. But in in terms of like my decision, Great Britain and, and Scottish athletics, they, they provide great resources, right? Equivalent to that of what USA track and field would be able to provide. So for those two options, I think that is easier. Now, there are some other athletes like I'm thinking right now, Right, we have a, a great triple jumper at Rice. She just came in fourth in the NCAA. I think she could maybe, she could compete for America or she could probably put in some paperwork to compete for, I think it's Cameroon. I hope I didn't get that wrong. But their resources are completely different, right? You compete for the US, you get all the bells and whistles going into Olympic Games. You compete for some other countries. It's like maybe they pay for your flight, maybe they to the Olympic Games, maybe, maybe you fund your own way. So m- my decision was slightly easier than that, right? Both the U.S. and Great Britain have great resources. Great Britain had much less depth in the steeplechase. It was going to provide me with many more opportunities to race in a uniform for my country because of Commonwealth Games, European Championships, World Championships, Olympic Games. There are just more things to do. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I want to make teams. I want to make teams. I want to travel. And that was the best way for me to do that. And so the term world class or Olympic hopeful, that's not even in your mind until after college and you start running in the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. And even even then, like I even think even when I ran the Commonwealth Games, I didn't have a plan much beyond that. I think every single year that I continued running, it was spurred on by so after I ran in 2010, 2011, I was doing my PhD at this point. So I graduated from I started my PhD was still was in Houston. I stayed in Houston because I did want to continue to try to run. And I knew that Jim was the best coach to kind of balance my... He understood how important academics were to me. And he understood how important running was to me. And I think trying to explain that to another professional running coach, like actually, you know, I'm not going to be able to travel to this meet because I have this academic conference to go to. It would be like, choose a path, right? Like either commit to professional athletics or don't. But Jim was never going to do that to me. Well, I think it's a great lesson too, especially for young people that I've had a number of these conversations and even I come in thinking, well, there was this great plan set out for each of these great athletes. And what I find is people are pretty much living day to day, month to month and one brick stacks on top of another. And then all of a sudden it it turns into something that they maybe didn't envision from the start. Now there are the outliers, of course, but many great elite athletes it's not the grand plan you think. Before we get to kind of run up to the Olympics, mm-hmm. I do want to, uh, hopefully this doesn't embarrass you, but talk mindset a little bit with mm-hmm. me. Because as I was reading through some of the things you've written, I want to highlight because they just strike me as incredibly evolved for your age mm-hmm. and for the mountain you were trying to climb. One of the things you wrote when you were speaking about your training and your preparation 
is that you knew that you would never compare your journey to your competitor's journey. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love that. I'm 38 years old. I still fight comparison Mm -hmm. on a daily basis, I feel like. I mean, I know Teddy Roosevelt's quote about it being the thief of joy, but I can't stop. Mm -hmm. You wrote more about the importance of being happy in your journey, which I think is oftentimes lessons we learn late in life. What led you to this place so early in life? Um, I, I will say definitely my my parents' perspective um, was very helpful to me and Jim Bevan's perspective and recognizing when I chose to, to run professionally, it was a choice. <clears throat> and so I do I remember one time calling my mom after a race crying because I was upset with my performance. And she was like, don't call me crying. You're choosing to do this. This is like an amazing thing that you get to do. Nobody wants to hear you so upset because you have this incredible gift. And like, there were just some of these moments where I was like, why do you get so emotionally wrapped up? And like, why do you get this urge to compare yourself to others? And because I was studying psychology, just kind of really diving into what was going to be most beneficial for my journey. And so these reminders were things, you know, I think I wrote about it a lot to reintegrate it into my philosophy and like the meaning of my journey a lot, because I did come to these moments of questioning, like, am I made of the right stuff? Like, why am I doing this? Like, what are the reasons? And it just became so much easier to do from a place of choice, individual journey, happiness, than from a place of, oh, it's unfair. I'm a victim. I have to do this PhD while my other competitors don't. Should have been putting in the A heat and I was putting the B. Like there are all these opportunities to, to moan about what life has given you. But on the flip side, there are all these opportunities to, to look at it from a different perspective. Uh, and I think I just made the decision early on, like, oh, it's exhausting to be so down on yourself so much of the time. And well, it's also easy. It's yeah. easy to yeah. wallow. It is. It is. I, the lessons I'm hearing are number one, write it down, mm-hmm. which I think is great. And number two, have support groups that are willing to tell you hard truth from time to time. Mm-hmm. And I think those are important lessons. But I also was thinking as you were saying that, I was thinking about the pain. And it's easier said than done. I think the same thing's true here. It's easier Absolutely. said than done. And as I've talked to great performers, whether it be in business or in sports, it's easy to listen to them and think that they're past it, that they've made it through and they're more evolved for the experience they went through. But another lesson for me is there's no such thing as being through it, mm-hmm. that you may be writing this and believing this one day. And then the next day you may not. And it's a constant journey, whether it's success is a journey, not a destination. But I think that's another lesson I'm thinking about as I hear you speak. Another thing I absolutely love, you wrote, again, I mid-20s, I guess, all your races are part of your journey. The good, the bad, the do not finishes. They were all taking you where you were supposed to go, which again incredibly involved to understand that your past not linear it may zigzag it may go completely backwards but it's all part of me and i'm bringing it all with me is that something you felt in the moment or that was retrospect so this is where right i while i was running as a professional athlete i was also getting my phd the majority of my phd people my phd program were just amazed that i even had time to run 30 minutes outside of all of the rigorous coursework and so I had this incredible group of supporters that, you know, whether I told them I ran 15 minutes in the steeplechase or nine minutes in the steeplechase, they didn't know the difference. Being able to go to that environment every day put some of my disappointment or like, oh, I'm not fast enough. I'm not as good as that person in perspective. So I feel like having how many people get that opportunity where they have this complete distinct world where everybody's just in awe of the fact that you can do this athletic skill. Not many professional athletes because they surround themselves with other people doing that exact same thing. So like that definitely helped my perspective. And I was also lucky, like my advisor for my PhD program, uh, Dr. Alan Witt, he was also very good at being like, you're doing this thing that is just so incredible. So I had this positive reinforcement from a place. I don't think many other athletes have a PhD advisor that like, they come back from a race, they're upset with it, and their PhD advisor puts it in perspective immediately. And I, I got to kind of download that all the time. Um, so I had these great people that really helped with that. And 
I think some of the some of my professors along the time, they probably could picture my journey in the future more than I could, right? This person, she, she literally jumps over barriers for a living. She can talk about how to overcome barriers. She has this PhD in psychology. So I feel like they were kind of writing this script for me and helping me form this really powerful narrative of the journey that I'm on and how, when I'm done with it, how I turn that into a professional career. Well, and also what I hear is balance, which is so difficult is you had your parents who were maybe the tough love and then you had your support group and they were keeping you balanced, which I think you need both. That's one of the things I think we miss when we talk about mental health or we talk about performance is that the power is in the balance Mm -hmm. and balancing the don't sweat the small stuff with you need some healthy self-examination and you need to discuss your struggles or write them down. Another thing that made me think about it, I've been in the entrepreneur space and there's entrepreneur peer groups and the COO of Shopify talked about Shopify wouldn't exist without this peer group in Ottawa where all they did was get together once a week, have coffee, have a cocktail and talk about struggles, talk about hiring issues. And it sounds very similar to your peer group Mm -hmm. is that you may not exist without this peer group to download whatever you needed to download that week. Again, athletic lessons turning into business lessons and life lessons. Well, get into the Olympics a bit. So another thing, it seems from what you've written that you were completely present and taken in the experience, which I think is great. What are the things that really stuck out about the Olympics? Was it the village, the opening ceremonies, the competition itself? Walk us through the Olympics a bit. Yeah. So, okay. The thing that sticks out, honestly, the most about the Olympics was the fact that I ruptured my planner at the Olympic Games, which is like this kind of nightmare. So, at the game? Yeah. Yeah. So, in, in going into... So, I finished my PhD in 2012, just miss, missing, just miss making the Olympics that year. Kind of toyed with retirement a couple times between 2012 and 2016, like eventually recommitted to the Olympic process and, and made the team in 2016. And so when you make an Olympic team, you're on the verge of, you're you're the fittest in your life, which is also very close to being injured. And I got an injury right before, uh, right before the Olympic Games in my planner and and kind of showed up at training camp, unable to walk. Yeah. And so this this was, I I got to put all my sports psychology skills to the test because I was determined to make this a valuable part of my journey. And I was thinking like, I am going to work with athletes one day who are going to show up in Olympic Games and they're, they're going to pull a muscle. They're going to get sick right before finals. And I get to live this experience and see how you can make the most out of it. And I, I worked very hard creating that story for myself every day while I was at training camp, unable to run. So that's like the number one thing that stands out is just kind of navigate. Like I, I went to, we were in a small town called Bellow. Like I went to like the local hospital to get scans because once I, as soon as I landed, the British doctors, they saw me and they're like, you know, we got to figure out like what the game plan is here. Very, very stressful kind of build up shifted towards injury management, not performance. I uh, was able to just get into my spikes the day before competition and kind of convince myself that I'd be able to make it around the track. And I just decided that like my Olympic experience was cross was going to be like starting and crossing the finish line, no matter what happened. And so I, I was, I was able to, to work through that and kind of the mental side of that. Honestly, the biggest thing that stood out from me from the Olympics is that there are thousands of athletes there and only a handful leave truly, truly happy. So in my apartment block, I think we had one athlete that medaled and we, popped a bottle of champagne for her and it was amazing to celebrate for her but there were probably five other athletes who were in tears at different points and because of my ability I think to have perspective from what I was like kind of doing and my long-term thoughts I was thinking like this is a great opportunity to think about that athlete who's crying over there because like she suffered from food poisoning before her 10,000 meter final and she's in tears that athlete who was so, so fit, but got a cold and then just suffered in the conditions and massively underperformed. Me, who had this planter injury that prohibited me from actually finishing my buildup and kind of turned my Olympic Games into crossing the finish line. And then, yeah, you have, you have the athlete who has the dream experiences, experience and medals, but just the stories from like listening to the athletes and 
I was able, I was very, very disappointed, but I think I was able, one of the things that I did was just like become a resource for others. Like, how do you help others? How do you listen to their stories? How do you put all this into perspective? How do you build it as something that can benefit you in the long run instead of being this life ending, going into this post Olympic depression, which they, you know, happens a lot. And so I was like, just really determined to do that. So walking away, with, you know, it's still one of my favorite things when I came back from Rio. Oh my gosh, tell me how awesome the Olympics was. Well, it kind of, it kind of sucked. Logistics were a nightmare. Rio was not set up to host that many people. My performance was a nightmare. A lot of my friends' performances were really poor. But it, yeah, I guess, yeah, it was awesome. I don't know what to say, you know? Yeah. Well, well, again, I, it sounds like reframing the narrative is important, which I don't know how much weight you put on labels, but post-Olympic depression seems to me completely understandable. Mm-hmm. And to hear you describe it in a way I've never heard it before makes it even more likely in my eyes. When you build up to this lifetime achievement and then it doesn't go that well, And especially if it doesn't go that well because of something outside of your control, it has to be heartbreaking. And another thing that that high achievers or high performers, elite athletes, they don't fail Mm -hmm. by the nature of it until they do. And then when they do, they maybe do not have the tools that you had built up. And it's, again, it's a journey. It's easier said than done. But the fact that you were able to reframe it in a way that allowed you to celebrate what you had accomplished is is a lesson for us all. That moment, being in that experience in the Olympic Games, seeing those things, actually being able to kind of sit back and take in all of the successes and failures of everybody around me has been one of the most valuable things to like advance me in my career and helping other athletes. And it's funny because I talk about it with my husband now and he remembers, right, being there. He remembers like my, like the conversations we had. Am I going to be able to put on my spikes and race? Am I not? The worry, the tears, just like the amount of stress. And he looks at me now and he's like, you managed to turn that into like a fairy tale. How did you do that? <laughs> I'm like, well, what else was I going to do? Create like this pity party? <laughs> well, another phrase I'm stealing from you that I'm definitely going to take. Tell me what it means to bounce forward. Right. So like that, I mean, that's what it means to bounce forward. Right? I didn't waste any time. I didn't, I didn't want to spend any time. Athletes waste so much time being down on themselves, being upset that they miss their perfectionistic standards and they lose valuable training time. They lose valuable time where they could actually be learning from these lessons. And I hate wasting time, whether it's taking a wrong turn, standing in line for coffee or ruminating over a mistake. And so I was just determined I'm not going to waste time feeling sorry for myself and not making progress out of this journey. I'm going to turn it into something instrumental very, very quickly. That's what I mean by bouncing forward is, okay, how can this benefit me personally? Or how can this benefit other people around me that I'm working with? And for me, it also struck a chord with what we were talking about, about framing your experience. And that was something I learned late in life. I always knew actions were important. I always knew thoughts were important. But it took me a long time to realize that the words I used to describe those thoughts and actions are also very important. And for years and years and years, I would have told you in an athletic tone that that's weakness. If if you failed, you better call it a failure. You better not sugarcoat it to guard your feelings or your ego. And then I realized, wait a second. This is not healthy. I need to frame this in a way that acknowledges what I had accomplished, acknowledges the effort I put into it, which it sounds a little bit about bouncing forward is also controlling your narrative and understanding what's important about the effort you put in. I'll also say that having like not that great of an Olympic experience and then also being told that with that injury, it'd be very hard to come back and steeplechase. What did I do? course extended my career one more year to come back to steeplechase at a world championships and show that whatever whenever if it's a death sentence that a doctor gives you or somebody saying that something is going to be really challenging they don't actually get to determine what your body is capable of and and i kind of springboarded off of that injury and it was like a fun process like me and me and jim bevan we were kind of like no should we just try and like 
make the world champs team and see what happens. And it became a challenge to my challenge was to take like eight weeks and do nothing physically, like let my body heal, start from the most unfit position I'd ever been in my life and see if I could build up to make world championship team again. And I did because we framed it as like a really hard challenge that wasn't on my radar pre-Olympic games that doctors who had looked at my plantar injury told me that I wouldn't be able to do. And we were going to learn how to hurdle with the other leg and find a way back on a world stage before I called it quits. And that was super fun. If you chose to, would you have had a legitimate shot at Tokyo? So, yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's played in the back of my mind a lot. And this is where physically, yes. In terms of like, what am I willing to give to the sport of track and field? Am I willing to go spend some time altitude training? Am I willing to give up time with my family? Am I willing to like not sleep in my own bed? No, I just became like the the sacrifices you have to make became challenging. The training aspect I loved. It was the traveling, sharing a room with people at a meet who you don't know. I just started to feel like too old and that I didn't want to do that part of it. Now, if I could train year round in Houston and find a way to immediately transport myself to a cool climate to chase qualifying seniors and then come back, maybe. But the logistics of everything, I think I just was like, you know what, I'm ready to to fully transition into to using that PhD that I spent time earning. So transitions can be tough for elite athletes, but it sounds like you may have been a little bit more at peace. Was your transition difficult? No, I actually think my, my transition, I really enjoyed my transition time. After the World Championships in 2017, I'd already hit the qualifying mark from the last Commonwealth Games in 2018. So I did those. And when I, the thing that was challenging was when I was at those competing, I knew it was going to be my last competition. And that's a very strange mental space to compete in where like as soon as you cross the finish line of that race, you're kind of you're done forever in your head. That was hard. And then I wanted to start a family. I wanted to have summers with my husband because in track and field, the circuit is in Europe and I competed for Great Britain. So I wasn't ever home and it was just it was, that part of it was draining on me. You want to have a logistics. great life, not just a successful life. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. And I felt like I was just like, miss, like, I, you know, you know how many friends' weddings I missed, how many like bachelorette parties I missed. And I think I was just like, tired of that. It may, may sound like, well, that's petty, but that for me, I wanted to have some other types of experiences I don't like think that. It's petty at all. I think life's in the details. I think that's yeah. the difference between a great life and a successful life. A successful life is transactional winning medals where a great life is going and getting drunk at a bachelor party <laughs> with your friends. Yeah. And it's about relationships and experiences. At least that's mm-hmm. how it is for me. Mm-hmm. But I also think the fact that you had a direction, you had your next mountain to climb, mm-hmm. I think is so valuable because I find with elite performers, it's not resilience or grit that's the problem. It's not effort. It's where's the next mountain? And I can't find the next mountain, but if I find it, I know how to climb it. Yeah. But you had that mountain, which was psychology. I have some questions that you can either answer as an athlete, you can answer as a psychologist, but I want to talk about goal setting and specifically how goals relate to expectations. Is there such a thing as healthy and unhealthy goal setting? Yeah, definitely. I think an unhealthy goal is one that is purely based on the, on an outcome. Um, and I think a lot of psychologists would agree, right? When, when you sit down with somebody, what's your goal? My goal is to win a national championship. Well, who, who's in control of that goal? You, to some extent, but also your competitors who are training. And there are other things that you cannot control. And I think it, it's great to, to use that as motivation and, and to visualize. But what do the sub goals look like? Like when I'm working with an athlete, how are we going to make this the most like fruitful, fun, happy, great journey, striving for that outcome goal? But what are those what are those goals together? What do they look like? I assume everyone in psychology has to be a fan of Daniel Kahneman. Do you read his stuff? Yeah, yeah. In Thinking Fast and Slow, one of his chapters, he writes about goal setting. And he starts the chapter writing about how setting lofty goals are difficult to obtain goals is a recipe for a dissatisfied life. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there going, wow, okay, well, that really speaks to me. But then he goes into the second part of the chapter where he speaks about setting lofty goals determines where you end up. Mm-hmm. And those who set lofty goals end up performing better mm-hmm. because it determines how you think and how you act, which 
to me says that the problem's not setting difficult goals or difficult to obtain goals. The problem is in a misplacement of value, like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Is your value tied up in this outcome? Is your value tied up in these expectations? Well, that's a problem. And how you don't do that, I don't know as an mm-hmm. athlete, how you don't derive some self-worth or happiness from your achievements on your field of play, whatever they may be. I don't know what the answer to that. Maybe it's writing, like you said, or having a good support group, however it may be, or a good sports psychologist. (laughs) But I do think that, again, we talk about balance. You need to set those lofty goals, but you better be very careful putting your identity in those goals because that's a dangerous game to play. Yeah. Yeah. It's the identity game is the huge part of it. And you see that so often. And so like one of the things that I've become more aware of, especially in working with these really, really high performers is is oftentimes people, whether they're in the NBA or NFL or, you know, competing on the Olympic stage, lots of times they're there because that's when somebody first identified them as being incredible. And so maybe they weren't great in school. Maybe they, they weren't very good at social relationships. And then they never developed those skills because they were a great athlete. And that's fine until it's not fine. I mean, it, it's... The end well. Yeah, no, never ends well. So you're working with elite athletes that are accustomed to sucking it up, toughing mm-hmm. it out, which is largely why they end up where they are. They also are probably not real familiar with discussing struggle. They're not real familiar with asking for help, especially mental health. Is this something you're seeing change as we talk more about mental health? Is this something you're trying to combat? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, one of my one of my goals is to be everybody's best friend. <laughs> so I want people to see me out on their field of performance and to get like a little bit, oh, regardless of what the outcome is, the world is great. Regardless of how disappointed or how happy I am, like, there's a place to go next. Um, so I try to be like a, a calming presence. I try to be a presence that gives athletes confidence, you know, allows them to focus on their performance, but not to a point where it's like a, a threat they have to or they failed. And I think just in general, mental health awareness, being having more people in the field of sports psychology has made that a lot easier. Um, and athletes have bought into it. I also think that when I introduce myself to athletes and say, yeah, I've competed in the Olympic Games before, like I know what it's like. There's nothing that helps me more than that in terms of identifying with an athlete and tearing down those barriers of you have to be tough. Because I think as soon as they hear that, they're like, oh, you get it. You've, you've been around other athletes. You've seen it. You've studied it in a textbook. You see that I'm like a human and the elite performer. And yeah, that I think that really helps kind of get rid of that. Have to be insanely mentally tough. They can't ask for help. Some athletes, it's harder. Some athletes, it takes time to to tear down those walls that they've built that they think have allowed them to get to where they are. And it's important for athletes to remember that their mental skills need to evolve throughout their career. So what made you great in high school isn't going to be the same thing that makes you great in college. And that's not going to be the same thing that makes you great as a professional. And there's this assumption that, well, in high school, I did it like this and I need to do it like that again. I got, you know, I stood on the start line and I got real angry and I looked at my dad and he told me I better win or else. And so I tried to do that. I'm like, well, you're five years older with, with five years more experience and a lot smarter than you were when you were 18. So let's kind of rework your mental toolbox and figure out how to compete on this stage. So a lot of it, yeah, is getting rid of some of the things that athletes do that they think makes them great now um, that worked in the past that isn't going to work today. Well, I have a lot of thoughts when you described it as being their friend. It just shows me how far we're coming in sports to have someone there that can take that role. A coach can't always be your friend. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that we've taken a big step forward to recognize that, that we need a separate profession that's part of this team. Mm -hmm. That helps be your friend. The other thing that you mentioned is how complex it is, or at least I think you were alluding to, is for a lot of athletes, it's not just about being tough. It could be about, forget athletes, how about high-level performers in business? It could be worrying about future opportunities. If Mm -hmm. I express doubt or struggles, this could cause me future opportunities. It could be, I had a a baseball player who played professional for many years talk to me about having a sense of responsibility 
because of these natural gifts. And part of that responsibility was taking on burdens that were unpleasant and not burdening others. So mm-hmm. I think there's so many layers there and mm-hmm. reasons why an athlete or a business professional or whoever, a great psychologist, won't share. You have to take the time to become their friends and dig into it and figure that mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk attributes that are necessary for elite athletes to perform at a high level mm-hmm. that no longer serve us when they leave the field of play. And I'm I'm thinking of things like overly aggressive behavior, alpha behavior, even the arrogance that I talked about earlier mm-hmm. that doesn't really play well. Have you picked up on some of those things or do you think that they just need to be retooled? We can still use them in a positive manner. They just need to be spun a bit for the real world. Yeah. So I think depends on out of those characteristics. So when I think about people who are overly like aggressive, I would argue that I don't even really think that's beneficial in a sporting environment. So I think that's something that they grew up with that was ingrained into them through a coach, through a parent, through a previous performing, performance experience, and they've decided that that's what they need to channel. I think they could be just as effective channeling something other than aggression. And so when I see that high aggression... It's like, this isn't beneficial in, in all performance situations. And it's not sustainable. And it's not fun to, to feel this way, especially if you want to have a long career. So let's rework that now. And let's rework it now because then it won't be a pain in your butt when you retire. Other things like, like things like modesty. So if they can rework that in order to, to package their skill set that they have as an elite athlete and sell it to whatever they're doing next and actually really buy into that, it can be beneficial. Now, if it comes from a place of feeling like they are constantly having to talk about their previous athletic accomplishments to make themselves feel like they belong in a room, that's not good. So I think you just kind of work with how do we, how do we re- repackage this to make it beneficial for what you're trying to do next? There, there are other things that sometimes athletes like being really impulsive and actually like not overthinking things can be a very good skill in a, in a, in a high pressure performance situation. Being very impulsive and not thinking through things outside of athletics can be pretty dangerous. So those are things that you have to let them know like, hey, this really served you well when you're making that split second decision on the court or when you were trying not to, you know, have that like paralysis by analysis by overthinking what was happening next when you were really trying to go automatic with your all your physical skills. But when you're in a working world, people people don't really value high impulsivity and low low decision making. All right, I have two more questions for you. Where's the line between healthy examination and neurosis? How do you teach balance? The people who like, just in terms of them reflecting on... I think it's clearly beneficial to examine your thoughts and discuss uh-huh. your emotions. Yep. But I also think it's no more healthy to be all in your feelings, as Drake would say, mm-hmm. all the time than it yeah. is to spend no time on your feelings. How do you teach high performers to find a balance between what's healthy examination of your feelings and what's just complete neurosis and over the top. So in general, I feel like that tendency tends to be like there, there's kind of an individual personality difference in people who are really emotionally driven and people who are naturally good at recognizing their emotions, but not allowing their emotions to impact big decisions or performances or things that they need to get done. And so they're just in individual variants and in, in how much of a problem that is for people. I think when people feel like they're riding an emotional roller coaster, right? When like they're good, everything is great and they can make these great decisions. And when they're bad, everything is awful and they can't move. They're at a spot where their emotions are impacting their ability to have a high functioning life. I think when people find themselves trying so often to be without distress, to try and like, they're trying to wiggle their way out of their emotions constantly. Their, their biggest worry is is their emotions. That's where that's a problem too. They're thinking about them too much. And there's some great research on, you know, the fact that like we all have emotions. We all have these basic emotions. Every single human does. They oftentimes provide really great, really valuable information. They're oftentimes, they don't like, they don't provide great valuable information. I mean, Oftentimes, today, we live in, in a world where there are just more anxiety triggers. And if we read into those triggers too much, then we're not going to make progress. 
if we never read into those triggers, we're going to have no sense of an understanding of who we are as a human and where we're trying to go. And there is a sweet spot. And yeah, it's, it's a hard one to find. I don't know if that like, you know, it's not like a direct answer, but it's just kind of shedding some light on how hard it is to find that level of recognizing the importance of your emotions and checking in on yourself, but then also being really focused on performance um, and very deliberate with what you're trying to achieve. Absolutely. I, I write like you do and wrote to myself, give your emotions every bit of space they need, but make plenty of time to get out and kick life in the ass too. Yeah. And I, love I, that. <laughs> I was, I, I don't want to ask you to make a political comment, but I oftentimes find myself thinking like, are we in a good spot right now? Encouraging the mental health Has the pendulum swung too far. Uh-huh. Where's that balance? And who knows what the answer is, but I think about that a lot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right. Last one for you. And then you can get out of here. So I have two daughters. You have a daughter. Mm-hmm. What's the advice you repeatedly give to your daughter or you plan to give to your daughter as she grows up? My goodness. this is, That's a very challenging question. Uh, one thing as a parent that I try to do a lot is give her, I try to give her a lot of opportunities for independence now for like kind of leading the way, seeing what she does. You want to have structure. You want to have like unstructured structure for them. You want to keep them active. But you also want to allow them to explore their own environment. For me, the the biggest challenge is going to be I'm a competitive person. And I'm already like, well, if mom was an Olympian, then like you have to make a final or maybe a medal. Right. And I'm joking when I say that. I know I'm like, like right now that's a joke. But, but is it, is it a joke? Um, so I think as a, as a parent, especially as a high performer parent, it's kind of having those conversations with yourself and recognizing like what is important in the journey of them becoming like maximizing their potential, maximizing their, their genetic potential, maximizing just their potential in life in, in general. And how can you help them facilitate that? Like, become self-actualized. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course.